Hey everybody, welcome back to Vassals of Kingsgraves, Agatha Christie Reread. My name is Bina007 and I will be your host today and I'm joined by Pat. Hi there, 2.0 on the Discord. Today we're here to discuss in our 33rd episode, Five Little Pigs, which was originally published in January 1943. Is this your first time reading it, Pat? And either way, how did you find the book? Yes, uh, it's my first time reading it. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised. I think this is quite good. I would say this is one of Agatha's better Poirots. I would say it, it's, you know, we've been putting them in tiers and I would say this is top tier. I think this is probably one of her best written books um, from mm. the way that the thing has been structured and the characterization. I think the it, it's quite well written in the way that she's used the characters to drive the plot. There's quite a clever use of misdirection in it. And she's got some great turns of phrases. I, I would say um, that you're a big fan of Then There Were None. I think this has got something more than Then There Were None because I think um, we get a, a sort of sort of tragic nobility in some of the characters that you don't get in Then There Were None, which is much more nihilistic. It's much bleaker. Mm. Um, there's less hope in it. Probably rank this maybe just behind Death on the Nile and Blue Train for me. And I think maybe that's just because I they, they have a more frivolous element to them. This is much more tightly written. And I, I quite enjoy those frivolous side stories, whereas th this is quite quite tight, this one. But I, mm. I think that's maybe if you're looking at it objectively, you'd say it was uh, it, it possibly made it a better book. I'd say the only downside on this, and they do have this on the All About Agatha podcast, is they, they criticise the nursery rhyme title, and it does seem a bit a bit cack-handed the way she's trying to crowbar the whole thing in. Although, yeah, uh, exactly. I think the, the whole Five Little Pigs thing is silly. Yeah, but I, but I do think the book is tremendous. And, you know, All About Agatha, I mean, that's that's their favourite novel of all, isn't it? And I yes. would say, uh, I, I, I do think on the hosts, uh, I think um, he, 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 he does give like his co-host a bit of leeway. I can't remember her name. Uh, Catherine. She, yeah. yeah, Catherine. Yeah. But she obviously loves this one. And he's like, well, you know, it's up there the same for me um, with a few others. But yes, I'll give it. I'll give you this. So, <laughs> yeah, to me, it's not my absolute, absolute favorite. Like like you, Death on the Nile is really one of my favorites. But to me, this is probably in my top five Agatha Christie's, partly mm. because I just feel the characterizations are so good. Mm. And as you say, there is a nobility to some of the characters and a tragedy. I think it's one of the most chilling final paragraphs, um, mm -hmm. not to spoil anything. And to reassure the listener, the first part of this podcast, as always, is going to be spoiler free. And then we'll get into the solution after the end credits music. Um, but I think... To me, this is probably one of the books that just has the strongest overall characters. And mm. and I do quite like the way in which the plot is constructed. That said, I do, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, the structure of the book? Because basically, you have Hercule Poirot interviewing everyone. But then mm. he also asks them in book two to write down as much as they can remember about the events, which mm -hmm. I did find a bit repetitive reading it again. I was well, like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. You know. I think that really works. And, I, and I'm quite interested in that as a literary device or even a dramatic device, because mm. I, I remember watching The Witcher recently in series three, and they used a similar device in one of the later episodes. And it really annoyed me because I, I did feel it was just like a, a cheap way of churning out content. Whereas I think this one is different with Agatha because I think when you've not um, met any of these characters before, when everybody's different, or, or sorry, everybody's new, 
getting a different telling of the same story, it, it allows you to unpick different character character traits that you're not going to pick up otherwise. And you're not going to uh-huh. get it when people tell lies or are inconsistent. So so we, we, we get that. So you, uh, 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 sort of like a, a read through, you know, reading it, you get little subtleties. Whereas in The Witcher, I think the reason it didn't work for me there was because we already knew who the characters were. We knew what the motivations were. We knew who the bad guys were. There, there was nothing new being told. It was just a repeat of the same story from different viewpoints. And, yeah. you know, when when you come in cold to the characters and you don't know who they are, like when we start reading this book, apart from Poirot, everybody is new to us. We, we have to form our own opinions of them and we're informed by what they're doing. And the retelling introduces new elements that you don't get from the different perspectives. But I understand it, but I quite like that as a, a dramatic device. Um, I think it works insofar as yeah. it works because it is a cold case. Maybe we should um, explain the concept to the listener who, who doesn't know about it. So basically, this is the first time we've seen a Poirot investigate a cold case murder that happened, oh, over a decade ago. And basically, the way it's structured is you have an introduction to the book, which is a young, very beautiful woman called Carla Le Marchand, who is getting engaged to a young man, but wants to clear up her past before she can move into the future. And she reveals to Poirot that many years ago, when she was a young girl, her mother was accused and convicted, indeed, of murdering her father when they were all staying at a country house, their country house, with a small group of of visitors, who are indeed the five little pigs or the five little suspects. And those those suspects include longtime family friends, the, the nursery governess who was looking after the young Carla at the time, but also the young woman with whom the, de- the murdered father was having an affair. And he was a very famous portrait painter. He was painting this attractive young woman's portrait. It was very clear they were having an affair and that the wife was very unhappy about it. And when the case goes to trial, she admits she did it. She pleads guilty. She is convicted and is going to be sent to Australia, but then dies anyway. But before she does so, she writes a letter to her daughter saying, don't believe it, I'm really innocent. So that's the mystery that Poirot has to go into the past to investigate. And therefore, in book one, it's just him interviewing people. So he starts off with the lawyers who both defended and prosecuted the mother, um, the solicitors, the police sergeant, and then the people who were staying in the house. And book two are the narratives of the five little pigs. And then book three are the conclusions and the reconstruction and aftermath. So that's that's the big concept of the book, which I really love as well. I do love a cold case investigation, mm. which, may, which maybe is why I like this book too. But that's why maybe I think the narrative works right, because there's a lot of acceptance and acknowledgement that memories vary and how, you know, um, somehow the act of writing it down might prompt memories as well. And obviously Poirot is yeah, and- part of the stories. Like Poirot makes the point as well, doesn't he? When he's speaking to them, they're, they're like, "Oh, all the characters say this." Uh, you know, um, but it was so long ago. Um, my recollection might not be accurate. Just read the police record, and he's like, "No, I, I want your recollections because mm-hmm. by examining them, I will understand what was important to you at the time, and I won't get that from the police files." You know, because people's and I'm not sure if it's true, but it it, it sounds plausible as you read Poirot's explanation. Like what he's saying is. Your 
your your mind will have focused on the stuff that was really important. It will already have sifted out all the chaff that I don't really need, and you will your recollections will be the things that I'm I'm going to be most interested in. And partly that's him trying to understand the psychology of the characters because Absolutely. their biases are going to come through in what they've remembered. You know, uh-huh. and I, I think that's what's really cleverly done in this. Like I said, I don't know if it's got a sound foundation in modern psych- psychology, but it, it's it, it read really plausibly. So I, yep. I thought it was really good that way. Um, we can get a little bit into the Christie first before we get into the characters and the plot too. So when Poirot approaches one of the little pigs, Meredith Blake, he introduces himself as a friend of Lady Mary Lytton Gore, also known as Egg from Three Act Tragedy, which is quite an interesting one. Um, and there's also a proverb quoted, take what you want and pay for it, says God, um, which is also quoted in Acure Poirot's Christmas. It must have made a big impression on Christy for her mm-hmm. to have u- reused the same phrase. It must have been something that she was quite, you know, fixed on because uh, yeah. it, it comes up in a similar similar sort of situation in Acure uh, mm. Poirot's Christmas. Although I realised actually when I was getting into this that the book was written a lot earlier than I thought. So published in January 43 in the UK, but it mm. had actually been serialised in the US in September 41. So wow. when I was reading it at first, I thought, gosh, it must be resonant for Agatha Christie writing this when her own daughter Rosalind is pregnant in the middle of a war, you know, because it's all about sort of mothers and daughters and what you'll do for your children. But, you know, it was probably written, it was written probably even before Rosalind was married, at being pregnant. So um, that was kind of interesting. And there was a bit, yeah. this, is, this is where the book start being more spaced out as well. So it was almost a year between this and the publication of the last one. Sorry, what yeah. were you I was just going to say, I, I I wonder how the timeline of the release release of this book um, tied in with Christie getting her um, royalties from the US yes. publication back in 1941. <laughs> Had she received any money from it or was she still waiting? Well, I think in the war it was very patchy, right? And she realised for tax reasons she needed to space them out. The title in America was Death in Retrospect, which I quite yeah. like. You know. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think both Five Little Pigs and Death and Rep, not the catchiest of titles. Not They haven't got the same sort of grip as like Death on the Nile or Appointment with Death, you know. But yes, um, anyway, I, I, I do think uh, one of the reasons this probably doesn't get um, sort of as much focus as as some of the bigger adaptations is the title because it, it, it's just a bit a bit naff. But like, the story is really yeah. solid. story is amazing. Um, before we get into it, let's do a bit of context of what's going on at the time when the people are reading it. So very unfortunately, this year of 1942 is one where we see both the Holocaust and the war gear up into full speed. So March 42, you have the, oppos- uh, the opening of the Belzec um, extermination camp in Poland. You have Franklin Delano Roosevelt basically passing the, the law that's going to allow for internment of German and Italians in America. We get the first mass transport of Jews to Auschwitz. So this is really is a horrible period. April 42, the extermination camp Zobibor opens in Poland. We get the construction of Treblinka. In May 42, um, this is really interesting. The first African-American seamen are taken into the United States Navy. By the way, this week, I don't know if you noticed, the first ever woman is in command of the U.S. Navy. Quite a moment. Yeah, Um, I've not noticed that. Yeah, very cool. We also have the Anglo-Soviet Treaty, so the formal alliance um, to fight the Nazis. Operation Anthropoid, where Czech nationalists try to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich in Prague um, and succeed in actually ultimately fatally wounding him. 
We get the Battle of the Midway starting in June 42. So the battle in the Pacific is really under underway. And Anne Frank makes the first entry in her new diary. And the FIFA World Cup that was meant to be being held in Nazi Germany is cancelled. In June 42, the first inmates of the Vesterbork transit camp in Netherlands are sent to concentration camps. We have the first battle of El Alamein in the Middle East. So the war really is now truly global. Anne Frank goes into hiding. We have the... Battle of the Atlantic. So effectively, this is the Germans giving up on U-boat warfare um, against the United States in a, because the American convoy system has been so successful. So that's something of a victory. And in August 43, in, in Empire News, I guess, Gandhi is arrested in Bombay by British forces. This is one of my favourites. Hedy Lamar and her friend George Anthaya basically create a version of um, sort of sonar slash radar, don't they, for, for you both? Yeah, and I, 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 Hedy Lamar is a character I didn't know a great deal about, but she's somebody who started popping up on my sort of like um, Facebook random posts and things like that talking about what an amazing woman she was because not only was she like um supposedly the most um beautiful woman in the world um and a, a, a sort of globally renowned actress but she was also like um a nuclear physicist or something like that she was like yeah, an incredible on the side. In her time. it's just so yeah. brilliant <laughs> there's a wonderful it came out a couple of years ago um uh, documentary on her called Hedy and it's it's I would ask anyone to watch it it's so fascinating yeah well um, I'll, I'll definitely watch that because she does sound like an incredible character that I would like to know more about so yes an amazing woman also in August 43 a great time for science plutonium was isolated those of you who've just seen the film Oppenheimer will be aware of that we also have um, the start of the Battle of Stalingrad one of the most monumental battles of World War II and also well worth reading about we also have, for conspiracy fans, the Dunbeef air crash where Prince George, Duke of Kent, brother of the king, is among 14 to die in a military aircraft at the age of 39. In September 43, we have the first um, Japanese flood float plane dropping bombs on Oregon. So it's the first of the sort of bombings of the continental United States. I always forget the US got bombed on its sort of mainland as opposed to Hawaii. Mm. Um and we have um, the film actor Errol Flynn accused of statutory rape by two teenage girls. You can also fall down the rabbit hole on how horrific he was. Even more monumentally, in October 1943, British sailors board U-boat 559 as it sinks in the Mediterranean and retrieve its Enigma machine and co-books, helping us to ultimately win the war because bunch of very talented English and Polish people cracked the code. Um, November 43, the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal ends, um, but the and with the US sustaining heavy losses, but ultimately retaining control, which is very important. And the movie Casablanca premieres in New York City. So that's, that's yes. kind of a lovely one. <laughs> yeah, landmark. Yeah, yeah. A great film. I, I still love it now. So That's probably one of my all-time favourite films. And yeah. then December, gasoline rationing begins in the US. So the US is really feeling feeling the war. And after the film Casablanca is released in January 1943, you actually get the Casablanca Conference, where you have FDR, Winston Churchill, Charles de Gaulle, Henri Giraud of the French Free Forces meeting to plan um, the Allied European strategy for the next stage of the war. And the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising begins. So this, this is a monumental time. 
Yeah, and one can yeah. quite see the kind of appeal of reading a story that's not only not set in the war, but set many years prior in a bucolic English country house set on the coast. I mean, as dangerous and nasty and subversive as this book is, very far away from the current events, I guess. Yeah, and I suppose that comes back to what you were saying as well about it being serialised in 1941, but released in Britain in 43. I mean, it's obviously been a, deli- a deliberate editorial choice about when to release it. And I'm sure she probably had other books up her sleeve that, that yeah. didn't get released. So there's been a, a, a definite choice to release this one. And that yeah. probably, like you said, has so, some it has been influenced by the monumental events that were, were taking place at the time. Right, so let's get into the characters who are basically the plot plotter's character right in this one. Um, let's start off with our favourite Belgian detective, Elkiel Poirot, and what I like to call the, the Lord Baron or Sander section of this podcast. <laughs> Do you have any particular moments of arrogance and Poirotness that you uh, want to bring tonight? <laughs> I, I, I am going to leave the the few that there are to you um, okay. i have got a couple of points i do want to make about poirot because i i i really enjoyed him in this and some some of the, the poirots we we barely see him mm. and although he's not central to this uh or essential to it I, I i do feel that we do get some nice insights into some other aspects of his personality apart from the ones that always tickle xander so yeah <laughs> okay well let's get the arrogance out of the way um So when he's being commissioned by Carla to investigate, she says, I'm being frank, you see, I want, I've got to have the best. And Akil Poirot responds, rest assured, I am the best. Yeah, it, it, that, that that I think that's really like the um the, the main one that we get. You've got that next one as well, um, which yeah. I think is brilliant. <laughs> so basically, Gilbert has wrangled his way into an interview with someone by pretending to re- be a writer, and they figured out he isn't. And they say, "You're not a writer," and he says, "Not precisely. No, actually, I'm a detective." And then Agatha Christie says. The modesty of this remark had probably not been equaled before in Poirot's conversation. (laughs) You realise that that's an achievement as well, because when he's speaking to Carla Lamarchon at the very start, Carla, uh, he says to Carla, you're disappointed in me. I'm older than you expected. And she goes, yes. (laughs) So (laughs) we're getting a feel that Poirot is actually quite old. So for him to have been this modest and it have taken this long is quite an achievement. So yeah, what are the points you uh, you wanted to make about Poirot in this novel? Um, so I think like um, it, it, it's the element of him playing up his foreignness and mm. um, him him leveraging that, and I, and I, I also I think one of the things that comes through is his integrity. And I think one of the things that Christie does with all the characters in this book, including Poirot, is they say one thing. But by the way that they behave and the setting that they're in, you get a different impression of them. So there's lots of um, blatant inconsistencies so that you're told one thing, but you see something else. And I thought um, Poirot is a conversation with one of the, um, the lawyers, the barristers. And with the inspector, where they both say, look, this is an old case. Why are you digging it up? You're just really, um, I'm paraphrasing here, you're a bit of a charlatan here, just trying to make a bit of easy money off a, a, a cheap victim. And then in the same sort of voice, they say, why don't you just make up a story to just take the money? I think it's a, a positive reflection on Poirot's integrity because he, he, he handles them quite deftly, but he says, basically, that's not what I'm about. I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm going to 
I'm going to seek the truth, you know. But it also shows their their attitude towards foreigners. They don't see Poirot as a man of integrity. And I, I, I do think it's quite interesting because it's a theme that I think is repeated through this book, that, that Poirot is probably one of the few people in the book who's acting with integrity all the way through. Yeah, and he um, warns Collar, doesn't he? He says, you know, if I investigate, I may find out that your mother did it. Are you prepared for that? Because I'm not going to yeah. soften the blow. You can set me to investigate and I will find the truth. Um, and yeah. like you say, there's there's more a sort of self-conscious playing for laughs, but exploiting other people's bigotry. There's yeah. a wonderful passage where Agatha Christie writes, Akil Poirot prided himself on knowing how to handle an old school tie. It was mm. no moment for trying to seem English. No, one must be a foreigner, frankly a foreigner, and be mm. magnanimously forgiven for the fact. Of course, yeah. these foreigners don't quite know the ropes. We'll shake hands at breakfast. Still a decent fellow, really. Poirot set about creating this impression of himself. So it's kind of like he's been in England for long enough now that he knows our class bigotry, our anti-foreigner bigotry, and he can just play us like a fiddle. And I think that's really, I mean, in a way, that's a kind of humility because that must hurt his pride to do it. But he he's willing to do that to get to the truth. And, and yeah. that, that's a bit of integrity too, right? He, he's putting his yeah. own needs second. Definitely. And I think if we want to talk about it in a, a sort of a meta uh, point of view as well, it, it shows that Christie has still got that sort of sharp observational eye about society. I mean, I, I, mm. I don't know if her values come through in this at the time, but she definitely recognises the the element of hypocrisy and double standards that sort of like right the way through um, Com- British society. Completely agree. So that's Lokil Poirot, our main character. Then we have Carla Le Marchand who um, commissions him. She's the daughter of Caroline and Amias Crail, actually born Caroline Crail. She was five when her father was murdered at Aldebury, their home, and was then sent to live with relatives in Canada. And then we have John Rattery, her fiancé. But they, I mean, I don't know if you have anything particular to say about them. No, not really. Yeah, they're just just... plot devices to get the story going, aren't they? Exactly, exactly. So then let's get into the characters who were actually at the house when the murder was committed. And let's start with Amias Crail, the murder victim, because so many people have different views of him. I wrote down a couple here, but I'll be interested to see if you have any impressions. Montague de Pleach, one of the lawyers, says, Crail simply wasn't that kind of man. You never met him, I suppose. No. Well, he was a great, blustering, vivid sort of chap. Great womanizer, beer drinker, all the rest of it went in for the lusts of the flesh and enjoyed them. And then Quentin Fogg, who is another lawyer, says, I should say Crail came as near as possible to being a man without even a rudimentary conscience. He was a ruthless, selfish, good-tempered, happy egoist. Any ethics he would have applied to painting. He wouldn't, I'm convinced, have painted a sloppy, bad picture, no matter what the inducement. But for the rest, he was a full-blooded man and he loved life. He had a zest for it. Um, so this would teach us to think that he was just an absolute rogue. <laughs> How did he come yeah, across I, to you? No, well, exactly the same way. He, 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 he's almost like um, a, 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 a Byronic cipher. He, he's like a, a Lord Byron character. You know, he's larger than life, dedicated to his art, out to have a good time and, and, and to live life to its fullest. And I don't think there is much more to him that we can really discuss in detail until we get to the spoiler section because yeah, that, that's a lot right. of these cases yeah the victim's psychology is important in in uh, understanding the um the murder yeah you know, but so. i think there is a big clue there isn't there in 
how seriously he takes at work. But yes, let's let's discuss yes. that when we get to the spoiler-filled bit. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get to the accused. Not even the accused, but the convicted. Caroline Crail, wife of Amias. She's um, got a half-sister in the house, the younger Angela Warren. She mm. was found guilty of the murder of her husband and died in prison within a year. Of her, her daughter says... She didn't tell lies, kind lies. If a thing was going to hurt, she always told you so. Dentists or thorns in your finger, all that sort of thing. Truth was a natural impulse to her. So there's one thing that her daughter says, but remember she was five. Philip Blake says of Caroline Crail, and remember he was Amias's best mate, so he believes completely that she murdered his best friend. Caroline was a rotter. She was a rotter through and through. Mind you, she had charm. She had that kind of sweetness of manner that deceives people utterly. She had a frail, helpless look about her that appealed to people's chivalry. Sometimes, when I've read a bit of history, I think Mary, Queen of Scots, must have been a bit like her. Always sweet and unfortunate and magnetic, and actually a cold, calculating woman. A scheming woman who planned the murder of Darnley and got away with it. Mm. So which do we believe? Is she the truth-telling, lovely mum, or is she the scheming, cold-hearted you know, horrific wife who killed the best friend. Any any thoughts on Caroline and how she's grown? Um, yeah, no, I, I I I think she is. Um, she's drawn rather vividly. I mean, with both Amias and Caroline, we have a a, a problem in that they're dead. You know, they they died sixteen years ago, so we're only really being given reports of them through other people. We don't get a chance to to judge them on their own terms because all the dialogue and the events that are related to us have all come down to us through other people. So, the two that you've quoted are two examples. The other thing that I. Um, I think it is interesting it is the relationship that she has with Amias because it is a very it's a very fiery one that like everybody talks about how they constantly fought with each other um and while Philip Blake might see that as um an, a negative it's not always seen as a negative by some people some people see it as just the, the way that their relationship was mm. um but certainly like she's a, a very outgoing and expressive personality and they say this on more than one occasion, you know, she often threatened to kill people. You know, she was quite explosive. She had a, a, a fiery temper. Um, yeah, and she was very verbally fiery in particular. So, yeah. okay, we've had the murder victim and the murderer, apparently. Um, neither dead, so they can't account for themselves. Let's get into the five little pigs. So we've got, let's start with Philip Blake, as we just mentioned him. He is a close friend of the family. His family lived next door when they were growing up. He is now a stockbroker, um, so he's the little pig who went to market. And I very much wonder if this is a thinly veiled portrait of Archie Christie, Agatha's ex-husband. <laughs> Probably. Um, but I, I, I did think um, the way he was introduced to us, uh, so um, we're talking about like the, the council and things like that. I mm. thought the way, th 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 this was the one thing that I thought Agatha had done quite well with the title. Um, mm. It is that um, sort of, we first get Philip Blake mentioned to us by someone to you to bleach the defence yes. counsel. And he says, oh, he's quite big in the markets. And then you get Poirot's in a mon monologue of oh, this little piggy went to market, you know. Um, yeah. And it, that's where he starts to put together the nursery rhyme. So I thought that bit of it was handled quite well. I thought I, I thought she'd done that, that quite well. I think um, he's quite an interesting character, um, Philip Blake, and he, he's well layered. And we yes. can talk more about it when we get to the adaptation bit. But I mm. do think that it, it, 
there's a definite bromance being written in, whether it's intentional by Agatha or not, it's definitely there between her and Amias. You know, the long-standing friends. Um, he's a great, you know, uh, he, he, he almost hero worshipped, and that's what his. Oh, I think I think it's test. definitely there. I don't think it's kind of unintended because it's so laid on thick. I'm, it's kind of hero worship, and you can the misogyny and the hatred of Caroline is almost territorial, isn't it? It's just jealousy that it, I was it his is, best friend. But- but and I was it, his adoring disciple, and then this woman came along. <laughs> yeah, but then it almost makes you wonder why um, the, 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 the other strand that was written in later, I think we can talk mm. about this, about how um, it was actually that Philip was in love with Caroline um, and that she'd rejected yeah. him. In I, never really that. I never really brought that. I never really brought that. But I'm glad one of the adaptations overran it. I often, yeah. I often think maybe Agatha had an editor who read it and said, oh, you're laying on a bit thick. You need to basically heteronormatize this <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was thinking something similar. And I, I, I do think that, um, you know, yes, that, that sort of it, it was disappointing in a way to read that being, you know, put in later on to say this is our explanation for why Philip Blake hated um, Caroline so much. It's quite interesting as well, because we'll go on to his brother Meredith um, in a bit. But it was interesting that Poirot picked him first. I do feel he's maybe um, just talking about it in the terms of the book and the plot. He's one of the stronger five little pigs, you know, um, as a character. You yeah, know, he's absolutely think, fascinating character, I think. Um, yeah, but he's also quite he seems quite strong minded compared to some of the other some mm. of the other characters that we've got. The, go the only other thing I wanted to say on Philip is that I think Agatha is commenting on his small mindedness and his um, bigotry. So <laughs> when um, Achille Poirot meets him, he's like, yes, OK, Montague de Pleach was right. He is a prosperous, shrewd, jovial looking man, slightly running to fat, which is not the most um, flattering of headlines. But he is the one that Hercule Poirot is trying to be foreign with. He mm. was at his most foreign today. He was out to be despised but patronised. So there is something very bigoted and nasty about Philip Blake under the surface, under that sort of fake golf club joviality. And then this is this is the damning sort of paragraph, I think. But his tone held a subtly mocking note. Intrinsically, Philip Blake was too much of an Englishman to take the pretensions of a foreigner seriously. To his cronies, he would have said, quaint little mountebank, oh well, I expect his his stuff goes down with the women all right. And although that derisive, patronising attitude was exactly the one which Hercule Poirot had aimed at inducing, nevertheless, he found himself annoyed by it. This man, the successful men of affairs, was unimpressed by Hercule Poirot. It was a scandal. So, yeah, there's something, I mean, Agatha Christie wants us to not like him right because <laughs> she, she does but i i think like one of the strongest parts of this book um for me compared to some of the ones previously is that i i, I these characters are much more shades of gray than black and white because although you you write everything that you said about philip blake there is that bit towards the end where Poirot convinces him to write the account because he's dead set against it to start with. And Poirot mm. says to him, you know, um, it would be a great help if you do it. And he said, you know what, I am going to do it. I'm going to do it for the memory of Amias and, you know, uh, uh, um, and the, my goddaughter who I've not really um, been involved with enough um, yeah. over the past. And I'll do it for free. You know, yeah. and, and and that that that's almost like the first domino to fall for Poirot because, like, when we got into Meredith, Meredith again is dead set against it. But as soon as Poirot mentions that Philip's going to do the book, Meredith, oh, sorry, do the um the account, Meredith is like, oh well, I'll do it as well. Yeah. Um, 
So let's get and, into Meredith then. Meredith is Philip's elder brother, which is weird because I kind of think of him as a younger brother because, as you say, he is a bit subordinate. He's a reclusive mm. one-time amateur herbalist who owns the adjacent property to Alderbury called Handcross Manor. He mm. just stays at home and he's very proud of being a person who goes out and he collects herbs and natural substances and will make healing unguents, but also poisons. And he likes to sort of show off his home laboratory. So he's sort of effectively an amateur botanist, scientist, I don't know. Yeah, and I, I, I think this, um, it, 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 it's um, coming back, I think one, it, it, what, like one of the reasons that you, you were doing this, um, this series of rereads is to sort of um, examine changing British, British society. And I, I think they talk about this quite a bit. Um, Amias and Philip and Meredith were all part of the county squire set yes. of Devon. You know, and these are all landed. I wouldn't maybe say gentry, but they are sort of. Yeah, like, I think gentry, especially yeah. for Meredith Blake. I mean, yeah. his, his, in and, fact, it's very hunting and shooting and fishing, isn't it? Because he, the, exactly. the quote I've written down for it is when he's meeting um, Poirot, this is his internal monologue. And now here was the man himself, really a most impossible person, the wrong clothes, button boots, an incredible moustache, yeah. not his kind of fellow at all. Didn't yeah. look as though he'd ever hunted or shot or even played a decent game, a foreigner. So he's definitely gentry in the hunting, shooting, fishing, wearing tweed. And, 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 and this is sort of capturing that 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 slice of British society, that that mm. upper class element of British society. Um, and he is very much representative of that element of it that's going to seed. You know, and Poirot describes this when he's talking about when he turns up. You know, he's got all these Harris tweeds. You know. They're slightly out of date and a bit worn, but all yes. fantastic quality. You know, and so. I think in a way, this is the sort of character that in the 1920s books, Agatha Christie would have rather admired and mm. the bigotry would have been in there, but not commented on. It would have been yeah. kind of intrinsically agreed with, whereas now she's viewing these people a bit from a distance and maybe with more confidence and time has moved on and thinking, actually, are they really admirable or are they just stuck in their ways and small minded? <laughs> Meredith is 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 not really, and he comes across. Although I would say again, he's a character who's got some redeeming features. Like he he has got this sort of misguided sense of chivalry. He does want to try and do the right thing. He but he is described on more than one occasion as just ineffectual. You yeah, know? and he he comes across really as a pathetic character. You know, um, and it, it, you know, I, you almost feel sorry reading story about about him like again i don't think it's a spoiler to discover that after um, amias is murdered he proposes to elsa greer you know and obviously she turns him down but he he sees this young girl who's had an affair with a married man as somebody who needs saving you know and and she was like never going to entertain this guy who's 20 years older than her because he's just not the sort of person that she's interested at all he's he's not a heroic figure he you know he is um, somebody who he, he's a member of the gentry who's going to seed. Yeah, know, he's, 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 not old, he's old money, life. and yeah. she is new and upcoming money. And yeah, I mean, I think she would see herself as very modern and leaving him quite behind. Let's get to Elsa Greer. So Elsa Greer, as was then a young sort of maybe twenty-something woman who's been painted by Amias Crail and having a portrait painted. A woman who has her own money comes from new money, though. And as we meet her, um, as Hercule Poirot investigates 
the murder in contemporary timeline, she is Lady Dittisham. So she has gone on, obviously, to marry an aristocrat. Mm. Um, and she's the piggy who had roast beef. She's very spoiled. She's very rich. And this is what Caleb Jonathan says of her. Um, a predatory Juliet, young, ruthless, but horribly vulnerable, staking everything on the one audacious throw. And seemingly she won. And then at the last moment, death steps in and the living, ardent, joyous Elsa died also. So basically, this is a woman who genuinely believed that Amias Krell was going to leave his wife for her and had this beautiful, wonderful future um, and was quite cruel about it. And, you know, basically had her hopes dashed. Yeah, I I, I, I think, you know, um, Meredith and Philip both say that uh, Amias himself, he had a history of having affairs, which his wife, Carolyn, tolerated because there was always the understanding that he he would come back to her. She always expected that. Um, But on this occasion, they both felt that, you know, Amias had only ever been, was only ever interested in two women, really, his wife and Elsa Greer. And there was a genuine belief that Elsa was going to take Amias away from uh, from Caroline, you know, and that's supposed to be the motive for Caroline murdering Amias, because she's made the statement, you know, that, you know, um, I'm not going to let this woman have you. You know, if I can't have you, nobody will. Yeah, Um, absolutely. It's I think it's quite a tragic portrait when you see her in her older life when she's got money. And um, this Mm. is how Poirot meets her and how he, I guess, Agatha Christie describes her. Up two flights of stairs, feet sinking into soft pile carpets. Mm. subdued floodlighting, money, money everywhere. Mm. Of taste, not so much. There had been a somber austerity in Lord Dittisham's room. But here in the house, there was only a solid lavishness, the best. Not necessarily the showiest or the most startling, merely expense no object allied to a lack of imagination, which is quite damning. But I just sort of thought, gosh, was it all for this? You know, the life of Elsa Greer, is this really, you know what what it was all for in the end um because when we see her i mean she's clearly like totally enraptured by amias and mm-hmm. having the time of her life like reveling in her youth and her joy and her beauty so yeah I I, 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 and um borrow just a little bit later on um when he meets her he, he he describes her as a blunt woman who would speak the truth and never lie unless it was necessary you know she she just she is unapologetic you know in telling people telling people what she thinks of them you know she's just this is it this is the way it is and like there's a lot made of the um the dinner mm. um the the, the 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 dinner where she announces that amias is going to leave caroline for her um and, and she's sitting there saying you know um caroline you've arranged the furniture in this room all wrong when when this is my house i will change the way it's arranged you know, and you're like, oh, my God. I hate using that phrase. And I hate when people use it even as a kind of like boss bitch, like even in a jokey way. I, I just yeah. don't like it. Um, but yeah. it, when I read that, when she's literally in a married woman's home mm. saying, oh, when I move in, when I've kicked you out of your house and I'm with your husband shagging him, I'm going to arrange it all better because you have no taste. And you're just like, oh, yeah. I, I, the other thing as well is like when that's being relayed to you by Philip Blake, yeah. He's there going, yeah, but Caroline had been getting subtle digs in and, you know, and, and getting crafty, <laughs> um, you know, crafty, nasty comments in that normal people wouldn't have picked up on because they were so cleverly done. You know, and you're like, but like, she's just been openly rude. 
<laughs> There's no equivalence here. Where, how can we say this is the same thing? But anyway. Um, but it is good the way the book builds up, right? Because at first you do think Caroline's this perfect Atlangelic martyr and then Else is this bitchy young woman who came in and stole her man. But yes, as the, as the book develops, you realise that Caroline was not without her own armour in this battle. <laughs> yes, but yeah, um, but um, Elsa is still that bitchy young woman. So we've done uh, the two brothers and we've done Elsa. So we've done three of the five little pigs. Let's move to the fourth, who is Cecilia Williams. So I don't know if you want to read some homoerotic affection in there. The devoted governess, uh, the little piggy who had none. Um, who's there basically to care for Angela Warren, who's Caroline's half-sister, but has a has a complete devotion and respect for Caroline Crail. Um, any thoughts on Cecilia? Yeah, I, I thought she was um, quite interestingly written. Uh, I, I think she's got a few um, sort of like interesting character traits. Uh, I think out of all the characters that Agatha's written of our five little pigs, I think she's probably the one that she has the most affection for. She's the one that she's written. Um, and Poirot makes this comparison himself, you know, in stark contrast to Elsa Greer, whereas Elsa Greer has everything but no taste. Um, this governess has nothing but, you know, has got, well, nearly perfect taste. Obviously, she doesn't recognize as she doesn't recognize Amias's talent as a painter, you know, but she's got um, copies of classic paintings on her walls and she seems very content with with what she's got um and it, the other big thing to come out is that she is obviously a feminist she uh, dislikes men on more than one occasion you know um you know she's uh she's got attitudes about um you know how men have the best of the world but i hope it isn't always so mm. you know and, and i do think again like we can talk about the sort of the um the homoeroticism of of her as a character and I, I, I do think um, um, the adaptation of making her into a lesbian is a bad thing in a way, because it does almost come across as all feminists must be lesbians, you know, yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> which is a shame, really, because I, I think it works for me for the Philip Blake character, but it doesn't necessarily work for me for the governess because it, it sort of it, it, it cheapens her stronger character points in a way. But but I do anyway. think it's wonderful. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we're now 1943, we're 20 years after the suffragettes, and finally Agatha mm. Christie mentions the suffragette. Hercule <laughs> <laughs> Poirot eyed her speculatively. You could easily visualise Miss Williams methodically and efficiently padlocking herself to a railing and later hunger striking with resolute endurance. Yeah. Um, I also feel that maybe I'm reading too much into this from the biography that Agatha Christie rather admires her and... At one point, she says, um, I certainly did not like Mr. Crail, nor did I approve of him. If I were his wife, I should have left him. There are mm. things that no woman should have put up with. And of course, Agatha Christie was a woman whose husband cheated on her. And to a certain extent, did she put up with it? With it? I mean, she had the sort of the mental breakdown, the nervous breakdown, and then the fugue state episode. Um, and ultimately, they did divorce. But I, in a sense, I think it's because she had been putting up with it and then finally cracked. So... I think there's probably something rather no nonsense and quite, you know, that that kind of binary judgment that Miss Williams is able to make that Agatha Christie might have mm. felt. I wish I'd have had the, the power and the confidence to have made that sort of judgment back in the day. But again, I'm probably over over personalizing there. Possibly, but I I, I I do think like there's a, there's an element of this again talking about it from a sort of a meta point of view 
where Agatha is obviously drawing on her own experiences. This hmm. isn't the first book she's written that has a love triangle in it. No, um, by far not in, the first. It's a very you know, common theme. <laughs> and in each of these books that she's written with the love triangle, there is always this um, theme, uh, I, I suppose there has to be, of um, of the affair. And she's obviously a woman who's experienced this. And she does... Yeah. She, she um, puts different permutations on the love triangle in the different books. You know, so you don't always get the same outcome. Keep reinventing that 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 love triangle, and she does put different spins on it. And I do feel that the emotions that she's able to convey in the characters are things that she's obviously had experience of. I think know? this and, one may well be the closest, right? Because it's the only one that involves a child. And I shall go back and look it up. But how old was Rosalind when Archie was cheating on Agatha Christie? I do wonder if she was five years old in the same way that. Caroline Crail's daughter is five years old. And the little mm. digs that Caroline is making to Elsa and vice versa, I, mm. I mean, it, they're so well written and they're so piercing. I do wonder if, you know, if that's what Agatha was doing at the time. Like, because yeah, or almost if it's Agatha replaying the events in her own mind. Yes, if I, could have, if I could have thought of that good thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You always think of it 20 years later, right? Yeah. The, wit well, the witty, dry cutting thing you wanted to say at the time. Yeah, this would have shown her. You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I think um, the only thing missing from that to back up your theory would have been if she put a, a, a dedication into Archie's second wife. You know, <laughs> in, in like, I've written this one for, for Archie and his new wife. You know, exactly. this is for you. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so those are the four little pigs. And now we have the fifth. Um, the fifth little pig is Angela Warren, who is the younger half-sister of Caroline Crail. And Angela, crucially, um, has been disfigured because when they were very young, um, Caroline Crail lost her temper. And basically, um, Angela Warren was disfigured as a result of that. And maybe Caroline feels a kind of a guilt about it and an overprotection towards her because of how she's impacted her life permanently. In contemporary times, um, Angela's all grows up and has become a very um, eminent archaeologist. So she has done very well for herself. Um, so I, I think she's, yeah, she's quite an interesting character mm. um, from the way that she's used by the other characters. So again, this comes back to the way that this, this narrative structure is used. Um, and Philip Blake says that Caroline, when she was a child, attacked Angela with a crowbar which shows this murderous streak that she had, which means that she definitely killed Amias. And again, right. this is something that's used in the court. They bring this up, this behavior. But it, it, it turns out that she threw a paperweight at her. She didn't right. attack her with a crowbar. So he, he's obviously exaggerated this story in his own mind. And again, it, 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 it's coming back to this. We're getting the same story retold from different perspectives. And we have to sort of sift the truth out of it. And I, I enjoyed that, 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 that sort yeah. of that structure. It, I hadn't realised it as I was reading it, but I had the most quotes about Angela Warren. I feel she's the one that people have the most differing opinions about, maybe. Like, she's one yeah. of the hardest characters to pass out. And maybe because she was just a teenager at the time, and as teenagers, we're just droppy and, like, moping about, right? But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. What were you saying before I interrupted? No, um, I, 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 just the fact that she was the, um, she'd been used by Philip Blake to illustrate uh, Caroline's um, cycle, you know, being a psychotic and a, a attacking with a crowbar when it never really happened. So the story's been retold in, in different ways. And again, it's the way that this attack on Angela is used by the courts to convict um, them to say, look, she's got this history. 
of behaviour. But I mean, it, it comes back again. We'll talk about it more in, in the spoiler section. But Caleb Jonathan comments on this as well. You know, yeah. and I think he's quite an interesting character because he, 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 he makes quite a few very perceptive comments. Maybe he's able to make them with the benefit of hindsight, you know, about how the um, defence solicitors messed up with their appointment of the appointment of the defence counsel because they, they got somebody who was completely wrong and was never going to be able yes. to put yeah. Caroline's story across. So he, he, he's quite interesting. But I, I what I liked about um, the Angela Warren character is, uh, is when Poirot meets her, you know, he, he admires her. He's impressed with her, but he, he doesn't like her. <laughs> she is a femme formidable for Poirot. And he, he's, he's intimidated by her because she's such yeah. um, a forceful personality. And I thought he it was quite interesting. Her dry, precise, clear, lucid, highly technical, the soul of Hercule Poirot approved. Here he considered was an orderly mind. I mean, that is mm. rare praise from Poirot. Have yeah, you I, ever I, heard him? I mean, sometimes he says to people, says of women in particular, ah, oh, she has a good brain. But yeah. we've never heard praise like this, right? I mean, this is proper. Yeah. I, I think I've only ever heard him use it once before for the colonel in Appointment with Death. You know, yeah. he's a bit scruffy, but he had an orderly mind. So mm. it's mighty praise from Poirot. And even the governess, so the fourth little pig says of her, She's one of the most interesting pupils I have had. A really good brain, undisciplined, quick-tempered, most difficult to manage in many ways, but really a fine character. And there's a there's a really interesting thing about Angela being at this weird age where she's not quite a teenager, but not quite a woman yet. She's not quite a girl, like where she kind of kind of fluctuates back and forth between them, which I think if any of us who've been young girls who've become teenagers and there are moments when you feel quite girlish, moments when you feel quite grown up, and it can be quite confusing to yourself and others. And mm. I feel that Agatha Christie explored this really well in, um, oh, what's the one set on the island holiday Under one? Yeah, she, she explored that really well in Evil Under the Sun, and she's about to explore it in the next novel, um, which is The Moving Finger. So it's, it's obviously something she's been thinking about and sort of working it out through, as she sometimes does, you know, she'll work out the same kind of theme or the same kind of idea over different novels. But I think she's very good at writing these sort of girls on the cusp of womanhood characters and making them compelling. There's also something to be said about the fact that um, her relationship with Amias is really interesting, right? Because actually they do get on, but mm -hmm. there's kind of a bit of jealousy almost because Caroline is so fond or maybe feels so guilty about Angela that she gives her a lot of attention. And maybe yeah. Amias, who's a bit of an egotist, resents that and is jealous of it. Yeah. And he's like packing her off to boarding school. So of course these five little pigs all have to have a motive. And the mm -hmm. motive for Angela, if we think she did it, is that she didn't want to go to boarding school, basically. Yeah, and, and she's got a history of um, playing practical jokes Yes. On Amias. And there's almost a, a, a feeling with this could have been a, a, another practical joke and that she might be stepping, have uh, been stepping up her game because, yeah. like, she, she's got a like, um, Amias hated slugs and she put 10 slugs in his bed one night and he was, That's you so know, <laughs> you know, he, he was driven crazy by rage. And then there's another one where she dosed his beer with salts, you know, and he drank because he had a habit of drinking everything down in one. You know, suddenly it turned into a powerful emetic, and you can just imagine he, like he's absolutely furious. He spent the next day on the toilet. You know, so um, 
you know, they've got this history together. And like you said, they, they, they're all given, they, they, because we've got five suspects, they've all got to be given motives for, yes. for carrying it out. And she's got quite a strong motive, um, even though it might not have been malicious because she was such a young person at the time. You know, she's definitely got this history of, you know, playing quite serious practical jokes on, on mm. Amias and is jealous at times as well. Absolutely. And like her sister has a big sister has a bit of a temper. Um, okay, so I think we've done the characters actually pretty well considering we didn't want to spoil stuff. Um, let's quickly get into anything that's progressive or regressive in the book. I mean, like I'm happy to say there's no overt sort of anti-Semitism or racism in this one. In fact, if anything, Agatha's no. mocking uh, people who are small-minded. I don't know if if anything struck you. No, I I, I think. Um... From the notes that you, you you've sort of like let let me have a look at, there's just this bit about um, Elsa Greer and and uh, there being an element of class snobbishness. Mm. And I don't know whether it's uh, Agatha's opinion or whether it's the characters involved. You know, but I, I think it works on both levels. You know, yeah. um, it's almost like Agatha's being equally critical of the dusty, withering old money, but also of yes. the crassness of the new money. It's quite even-handed criticism, but. There is just this one line where she refers to her, her grandparents as, as being mill hands, and it does sound a bit contemptuous. Where I'm like, well, if if your father made it so you're lavishly rich in one generation, like kudos to him. But yeah, there's a little bit of uh, there's just something there, which is kind of weird because in a way, Agatha Christie herself is a self-made millionaire, right? So. <laughs> yeah, and she, yeah, uh, but uh, there's that bit where uh, Elsa Greer again is unapologetic. She's like, my dad was a mill hand, you know, and he could take no prisoners in life to make money and i also take no prisoners in life you know if i see something i want i go after it yeah you know, and I, I really love that i, I actually really weirdly admire elsa because i think there's something courageous and bold in that sort of naive maybe in that sort of going ahead at life and just this is what i want yeah i'm gonna get it well the, 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 there is that quote um i think it's um caleb jonathan says it and uh and and Poirot also mentions it about that um, that uh, naivety but aggression of youth. Mm. You know, they're they're um, the sort of like the innocence that needs to be protected, but it is also you know fiercely aggressive in pursuing what it wants and cruel. Absolutely, you know, she she goes for what she wants and she gets it. And in a sense, it, she is a take no prisoners person. But then says Amias, right? That's what we're taken to believe. So yeah. you know, in a sense, maybe it's it's good to see a woman being just as um, sex positive and as driven and as you know and it's interesting that what can be seen as ambitious and you know hey he's just a roguish thigh slapping guy is how is that seen when it's actually a woman doing it yeah um, I, I would the same yeah all right let's get into the adaptations which i think unusually are both um are pretty good so apparently I, I had not realized this in 1960 christie adapted the book into a play called go back for murder but took poirot out of the story um haven't seen it. Don't know anything about it. So there we go. No, but uh, they, they, they were saying um, on the All About Agatha podcast that uh, it, apparently it wasn't a great success. You mm. know, and uh, Agatha was quite put out, that, you know, because she quite fancied herself at being able to adapt her own works. To yeah, the stage. and she loved theatre, didn't she? She absolutely yeah. adored theatre and it must have hurt her. Apparently it came to London's Justice Theatre on the 23rd of March 1960, but lasted for only 37 performances. Which maybe just because it was such a big lead time between, because normally when she was adapting these things, they came out quite quickly when, um, you know, probably the novel was still in people's minds and therefore there was a more natural audience for it. 
So yeah, possibly. I I, I do think though. Um, I think uh, by taking Poirot out, she's missed one of the the, the strengths of the book because I do yeah. think Poirot is quite a strong character in it. I mean, you, the story can be told without him, like a lot of Poirots can, but I, I do think he's um he, he's given quite strong characterization here. Uh, exactly, his benefit. I agree. Um, so then the only um sort of televisual adaptation is an episode of the British ITV Agatha Christie Poirot series starring David Suchet, and it's season nine, episode one. So it came out 20 years ago in 2003 um it's really interesting actually because i think this is one of the best adaptations in the series partly because the cast is so strong mm. we've got rachel sterling as caroline um we've got toby stevens as philip we've got aiden gillen so little finger fans from game of thrones as amias um, we've got Sophie Winkleman as the adult Angela, Tallulah Riley, who would then go on to marry Elon Musk, as the young Angela, um, Patrick Malahide as the Montague de Pleach, Gemma Jones, who's amazing as Miss Williams. It's a really, really strong adaptation. Um, there are some changes to it, including the sort of the queering of the Miss Williams character and the Toby Stevens or Philip and Miss Williams. Um, but yeah, I mean, how did you find this one? Did you have a chance to watch it before podcasting? I, 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 I got about halfway through it, um, and then I, I got sidetracked. I, real life got in the way, and I couldn't finish it. I I thought it was quite good, um, like with a lot of the sushi adaptations, you saw the setting was impeccable. Um, I thought, like the cast, like you said, was stellar. Um, I did think that the first Toby Stevens interview with Poirot was a bit OTT. I thought <laughs> he, 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 he's almost hamming it up, but he, he can do that sometimes. And I think that's why Toby Stevens can sometimes be a great comedy actor because he, mm. he's got the ability to play that, that, that character OTT. But yeah, um, I, I was impressed with the cast. I, I think the two big things that uh, it's it, it sort of like the the idea of Philip having this um, bromance with Amias, and then the um, the sort of um, the governess also being in love with Caroline. I I, I think that they're quite interesting takes on it. And like I said, I think one works and the other one doesn't. There's a brilliant visual way of representing the patchwork of slightly different off memories. Yep. that people have when they're writing their testimonies and it's a kind of Rashomon style especially when you get into second half so if you go back and watch it you'll see they kind of do a lot of almost let's do the different scenes but from a different POV and they actually do different yeah. point of view shots so it's yeah. a rare case where the visual style and choices by the director really convey beautifully and viscerally what's going on in the text. I think it's just a... Yeah, a and I, I think well, if I'm remembering rightly, they do some of those flashbacks as well in like a softer focus. Yes, you know, exactly. You, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's almost like the wavy lines that you used to see in you know in like 60s dramas you know it's like we're having a flashback let's have some wavy lines across the screen it's not quite that corny but you you, you sort of you get the feel that we, we're, we're going back in time and yeah. they do do that quite well as well like they, they, there's a time where they're driving around in like 1930s cars and then all of a sudden they're driving around like 1920s cars you see the difference in the period you know just mm -hmm. with the way the technology's moved so yeah it's been it's well done absolutely well, dear listener, we're going to leave it there in terms of the spoiler-free discussion. We hope you've enjoyed this and maybe been tempted to read the novel because it is—it's—it really is one of the better Agatha Christie Elkiel Poirot novels. Um, if not, we hope you join us next time where we'll be discussing a Miss Marple novel set in St. Mary Mead called The Moving Finger, which is all about nasty anonymous letters being written 
to people in the village and murders ensuing. So with that, thank you very much for listening. Okay, so let's get into the solution to this murder mystery and into the spoilers. So the solution to this mystery is that Caroline Crail did not kill her husband. The murderer was actually Elsa Greer and her motive is that she realises that Amias is not going to leave his wife for her. He never does. He is stringing Elsa along and telling her that he loves her and will leave his wife for her because he just wants to finish the painting. And as soon as the painting is done, he will dump her. And so when she realises this, she steals the poison, which Caroline Krell has taken, and slips it into Amias's beer, and he dies very slowly while painting her. And it's very interesting because when you see the portrait, you realise the expression on Elsa's face is one of triumph over Amias. But um, the last laugh is not with Elsa because her life has become hollow. And when you read the final pages and paragraphs of this novel, I think they're some of the most tragic because you realise that she is living in a kind of prison of her own guilt and anger and desolation. So that is... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if she's feeling guilty about it, but there's, there's definitely that, that, that element of there's a hollowness to her life, mm-hmm. having lost Amias and killed him. You know, not nothing is ever going to be the same for her because he's not there anymore. She she had this fiery, passionate love of her youth, and that's gone, and she can never recapture it. And it's almost like um, Poirot describes it, doesn't he, as a, a flower that budded in the frost and was eternally caught in that moment. You know, and and can never recapture that that moment or grow yeah, it's beyond like it. Like arrested development, isn't it? And she's just yeah. frozen into something very hard. And yes, she has the money, and yes, she has the aristocratic title. But one gets the impression that she cannot feel happiness, and her life is effectively over. So, if Elsa did it, why did Caroline say that she did it? She says that she did it because she's trying to protect her sister, Angela. She feels that Angela is maybe angry at Amias for sending her to boarding school and has played a trick by putting the poison in a beer and giving it to Amias. So she's trying to cover up for her kid sister out of that complete and utter guilt. And the thing is as well, that, 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 um, that belief that she's got is entirely reasonable because like she goes to get Amias's beer from the fridge um, mm. and um, Angela is messing about with the beer bottles, you know, mm. and, you know, so when she realizes that Amias has been poisoned straight away, she's thinking that the, and that is what it all turns on how Poirot figures it out because we're, we're told that the, the poison was in the glass. Yeah. But mm. um, Caroline saw Angela playing with the bottle, which is what led her to believe that, um, uh, uh, Angela had poisoned Amias, you know, and, and so she was mistaken in that belief. She didn't, she didn't know that um, it was in the glass, and, and that's part of the tragedy of it as well, because she is trying to protect Angela from this, out of this belief that she'd done her wrong as a child, and she's always trying to make amends for that. Um, and so she kept Angela away from the trial because she didn't want any chance of Angela being caught. You know, she was prepared to take the, the fall almost as um, a way of paying her debt. Yes, and know. if you read her letters to Angela, you'll you'll realise it in the phrasing. 
So this, how, how close did you get to check to guessing the solution or do you not read them trying to? Do you just read them for the joy of reading them? I, I, I read them for the joy of reading them, but I, I guessed this solution about halfway through the book. I think I probably guessed it before. I, I think I actually, I almost certainly I guessed it um, after I read uh, Poirot's Elsa, interview with Elsa Greer. Yes. So this, I, yeah, I, I remember very distinctly when I first read all these Christie's as a sort of late teenager, early 20s, that I guessed this very early on, too. Um, and I think this is one of the most clue. I wrote down 11 clear clues, mm. um, which I just want to go through quickly. But t- is this the one of the most guessable ones that for me, this is the only one I've ever come close to guessing correctly that early on? Is it the same for you? No, I mean, like... Um... Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Good at, just Christmas. I got almost immediately, you know, because of, of the way that everything um, just dropped with the timings and stuff. And it, yeah. it, it, it followed the Christie sort of plot. Way of this doing things. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think the difference between this and Hercule Poirot's Christmas is I think the cluing is much more sophisticatedly handled here. And I do think Christie misdirects very effectively mm. um, quite a way through this book. I, but by the same token, she's honest with her misdirection. She doesn't lie to you. What she does is she gives you a way of interpreting it in two ways. Yes. You know, and and she, she plays her because she has the interviews and the narratives. And there's a, she gives you a lot of information. So I think she does play incredibly fair on this one. Yeah. Uh, I, I, like, there's a great bit with Caleb Jonathan where um, Caleb Jonathan turns around and effectively tells us what's happened. Mm. You know, but then he turns around and puts a different explanation on himself. Yeah, he turns around and he says, well, you have to understand Caroline had this fiery temperament when she attacked her sister, Angela. And it's the sort of thing that you, um, you, 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 you have as a child, but you grow out of. But then she had this fiery temperament and killed Amius. And you're sitting there going, yeah, but she was grown up when Amius was murdered. So yeah. you, you, you've explained to us why she didn't do it, but then you've turned around and said this was evidence of why she did it. You know, and the, there are those double inconsistencies where the characters sort of, um, they, they they tell us what actually happened, but then their interpretation of it um, leads us down a different path. And actually you, know? you get the further explanation that because she was physically violent in her youth, she is more than unusually verbally violent now. Because yeah. she feels yeah. that if she rants and raves and is angry verbally, that's a safer way to get the steam, to let off steam so that it doesn't then cause yeah. physical violence. So it's kind of like you're given even two separate kind of reasons yeah. why she wouldn't have done it. Let, let's run through the clues, though, because, oh, sorry. Well, let's no, I was going to say, I think what, one of the other things, though, is, is that although you might guess this relatively early, what you're not clear on is the motivation for why she was so meek and placid in the court. Yes. And it's only really you get it's only when you read Angela's interview with Poirot that you fully understand um, how guilty she felt over the um, the attack mm. um, when she was a child. And it was obviously something that haunted her all the way through her life, you know, because she's written this bit to say, look, don't come here. You don't need to feel guilty about anything. Um, you know, I, I, I'm at peace. I'm, I'm, I'm content. I feel a massive sense of relief. And like, I'm sorry to jump around, but I do get the feeling as well. That's one of the reasons why Elsa Greer feels so aggrieved and hollow at the end is because she feels that um, 
she, you know, she's killed Amias, deprived Caroline from having Amias, you know, but she doesn't get any satisfaction because Caroline never, um, I think, who is it says that she was never defeated because she never joined battle. One of the defense, I think it's the defending council said she was never defeated because she just never took the battlefield. You know, she never put up any sort of fight against this. Yeah. And you get the feeling that's one of the reasons why Elsa Greer feels cheated because she never got to win. Yeah. Caroline never let her. Car- yeah, yeah, exactly. Caroline just yeah denied her her victory. Sorry, so sorry. I mean, the, the way I therefore think of Elsa is is a life thwarted. It's just yeah. she was thwarted in love, thwarted in her love rivalry, and it's just been a really hollow, empty life. And it's it. I find it quite tragic. Um, yeah, definitely. I think it's written very effectively that way. Yeah. Okay, well, let's run through my 11 clues and then we can close it out. So clue number one, why did um, Caroline take Amias a beer when they weren't meant to be on speaking terms and she was meant to hate him? That seems a bizarrely loving wife thing to do on hot day. Two, Amias says everything tastes foul today when she gives him the beer, which implies that he's already had a poison beer. Number three, the ludicrousness of Caroline's immediate suggestion that Amias had committed suicide. It just doesn't fit with his character at all. So you can tell that she's scrambling. And if she really was planning to murder him, she probably would have figured out something else. Number four, we know and we're told that nothing comes between Amias and his art. So he probably is lying to Elsa. Number five, Amias is jealous of Angela because Caroline always takes a side and wants to send her to school. Number six, Angela plays tricks on him, including putting salt in his drink. So this sets up the reason why Caroline is going to think it's Angela. Seven, the most important words in the book I've written. Harry was haunted, continually haunted by the fact that she had injured me. That knowledge never left her in peace. It colored all her actions. It explained her attitude to me. So Angela is basically telling you Caroline's motivation and taking the blame. Eight, the fact that Caroline wants Angela kept away from the trial. And nine, the portrait itself. So much life, such passionate youth. That then was what Amias Crail had seen in Elsa Greer. A superb, slim, straight creature, arrogant, her head turned, her eyes insolent with triumph, looking at you, watching you, waiting. Ten, the painting is nearly finished. And eleven, Caroline fakes the fingerprints on the beer bottle because she thinks that that's how the poison was introduced to the bottle, whereas Elsa actually just put it into the glass. It was never in the bottle in the first place. So there are lots and lots of clues. I think this is one of the most playing fair with us of all the Agatha Christie's, I have to say. I think it's just brilliantly, brilliantly plotted, both in a logistical sense, but also yeah. ecological sense. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, as well... Um, Unlike uh, a few of the other Christies as well, the characters are sort of remaining true to themselves, you know, and they, they've driven the plot. You can understand why Elsa has killed Amias. Mm. You know, it, it's all explained. You can understand why Caroline has not put up uh, a decent defence at trial. You know, and that, that, there's an element of tragedy to that as well, because you almost get the feel like she's protected Angela by saying, right, don't come to trial. But you almost get the feeling, I think Poirot even makes this point, that if she, if Angela had gone to the trial, they would have exposed the whole confusion over the bottle and the glass. Yes. And it yeah. might have actually been, you know, a, a, an ability to get Caroline off. You know, so th- 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 there's, th- th- there's an element of the tragedy of that situation there. I, I, I do think, like, the way that this all hangs together, it, it, it is quite it, 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 it's easily one of our most effective books and I, I don't know if i said this at the start but like it's almost it, 
it's like um, Sad Cypress, but yes. actually elegantly finished rather than yeah. a bit cack-handed, you know. Yeah, better plotted, but yeah. effective She's not just wrapping it up for the 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 um the print deadline that she's got she's actually taking her time to 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 write um a a, a really elegant ending to this i think it, it's it's very well written the, the other thing I, I wanted to touch on um which again is a tangent um is the little moments where and i mentioned this at the start but i i didn't want to go into too much detail is the way she um presents the double standards of a lot of the characters so mm. There's a great bit with Caleb Jonathan, who, like, when I first read it, I thought, oh, this is a really interesting character. He's very, very perceptive. You know, he talks about how um, the defence solicitor has appointed the wrong counsel because Caroline was never going to play. Yeah, ball. talk about that, because that's really interesting. Well, I, 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 the point I wanted to make about him being, um, like, perceptive was, like, a lot of the characters in this, though, I, uh, Agatha is highlighting a, a hypocrisy because he, he's quite damning about Philip Blake. He talks about how he's money-grubbing and... He's gone to market yeah. and he's very dismissive of him and, and quite nasty. Mm. But by the same token, when Agatha's talking about Caleb Jonathan, she's all, and, and Poirot visiting him, she's also describing a very rich setting, how he always has the right port and, you know, they're having very expensive brandy after dinner. So I almost get the feeling like, like when I was reading, it's going it's like you're criticizing Philip Blake for pursuing money, but you're a very well paid solicitor. You turn down criminal work because <laughs> exactly. it's beneath you, exactly. you know, and you're, you're you're living off, you know, the 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 money that you've made being a solicitor. You've not done that out of the goodness of your heart. You've done it, to, you know, to make some money. And like, it's not just with Caleb Jonathan. You know, it's the same with Inspector Hale. He, she. She has them say one thing and be quite dismissive of characters, but then highlights this underlying hypocrisy that they've got. And I, I, I think, you know, like I said, I have not got as much affection for this book as I have for some of the stuff that's a bit frothier. I enjoy it more. It's more, um, it, well, there's murders in it, so it's maybe a bit crass to describe it as lighthearted. But um, I, they're, they're an easier, more comfortable read. This one's... Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's got tragic elements to it. I think, me objectively, it's probably her best book. You know, maybe then there were none as better, but like. No, I think you're right. I mean, the more I talk about it, the more I really think, is this in my top five or is this my number one? I mean, it, yeah. well, let's see when we get to the end of the reread, but I think the plotting yeah. is exquisite and the characters are so well drawn and it, the motivations are also credible and there's a maturity and maybe a cynicism about human nature and bigotry mm. and it's just such a mature beautifully written work i mean it's yeah like i said i prefer death on the nile and I prefer mystery of the blue train because they're lighter brothier easier comedy. reads yeah, and exactly. I, don't, I don't have to sit there and ask myself difficult questions you know yeah but this this book is i think it, it, it objectively it's a better book than the others Oh, yeah. yeah, but I love Death on the Nile. So I'll, if I had to keep just one Agatha Christie for my yes. desert island for the rest of my life, it would be Death on the Nile. So. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I'm with you. You know, because I, I find it a lot easier to go and reread some of those those light, more lighthearted moments. You know, but I think this is a, it, it, it's a very good book. Absolutely. So. Well, Rita, we hope you enjoyed our little discussion of the solution. 
as I said before, it remains to be seen. I suspect the moving finger might be a mini pod, but I don't know um, if you fancy doing it. It's a Miss Marple. I think it's quite a good one, but I think a lot of people might think of it as second tier. So not yeah. sure. Well, I, 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 I'll give it a read anyway. You give know. it a read and see what you think. Yeah. Towards yeah. zero, I think is objectively rubbish. So. <laughs> <laughs> but so um, I think that will almost certainly be a mini pod. But, you know, if you read it and you want to discuss it, then that's all cool. We are going to miss, so those were, Moving Finger was published in 1943. Towards Zero was published in 1944. Also in that year, she published a Mary Westmacott novel, which we obviously won't be covering because it's not a meta mystery. And I've also made the decision that we're not going to cover her 1945 mystery novel, Death Comes at the End, because that is um, set in ancient Egypt. So it doesn't really kind of fit in with our chronicling how social attitudes um change in British society through the 1900s but it also is frankly because I don't think it's a very good book either so we're going to pop up after moving finger and towards zero with sparkling cyanide in 1945 which will be a colonel race murder mystery in the last of our world war ii novels um so with that plenty of you guys to get your reading chops stuck into and we hope you enjoyed listening thank you very much for coming on pat i really enjoyed thanks very much thanks thanks for organizing it again bina yeah and hopefully by the end of it you now love it more than you did at the start i'm quite evangelical about this book and i do it was with some joy when i heard catherine say that she loved it and all about agatha which is again guys you should go listen to that podcast it's incredibly well researched and it's an amazing agatha christie podcast Mm. if you're reading along at home um all righty well have a lovely week and speak to you soon bye everyone bye Thank you.